Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. Good morning, I'm Laura, um, and we are continuing today our uh, series or conversation about liturgy, the work of the people. And in considering the background of Hebrews that we spent time in just recently, it's the work of the priesthood. We've been called to a royal priesthood, and this is a part of what now we're going to do as a priesthood. I, um, I, was, I feel like Robert kind of voluntold me I had to teach. Um, so um, I have a lot to share, and we'll see how it comes out. Um, and so I want to try to be uh, on task and keep going. Um, but I will read passages from my Bible, not from the screen, because I think it's, it slows me down to let others get to the same place in their Bibles. And I think it can be very significant to read from physical Bibles. I think Bible apps are okay, but I think it's really significant to feel the weight of it, to look at the words on the paper, to turn the pages, and then in doing that, our Bibles become really familiar to us, and in this unexplainable way, they become the Word. They become Jesus as we hold the pages, and so um, I won't read from the screen. It'll be from here, so if you have a Bible, please get it out. Um, Let us read from James to get started. Um, we've, been, we've been like looking at James and then lately looking at some of our values as a community. And so that is again the focus today. So let's go to James 2. <laughs> My Bible likes to go from Hebrews to Revelation. So, okay. In James 2, um, starting in verse 14, he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. 
you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. The two things I think, I, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> James has a lot to say in there. But um, he says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And then he even said, you see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. We need to be careful not to take from this passage the idea of faith plus works is necessary for redemption from sin, for salvation, to be in communion with God. Because Paul clearly taught in Romans that righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And quickly in Ephesians, he said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what does James want us to know? It's that, I think, faith is not merely intellectual assent. To agree intellectually that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, well, even the demons do that. And that he died on the cross for our sins is not enough. It's not enough to know the Bible answer. We receive Christ as an act of the will. Experientially, emotionally, it is an act of trusting. To believe, to have faith, is to actively trust God the Son. This is very important. It's central to being in the family of God. God the Father has said, here is my dearly loved Son. I am giving him for your salvation. What will you do with him? Will you actively trust him? Will you trust me? Will you trust the Spirit? who has been entrusted to those who believe? Will you listen to the Spirit? Will you follow him? This is faith with deeds. This is actively trusting. So if God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are real, then what? If you actively trust them, then what? It will change your worldview, your perspective, your choices, your daily life will change. When I was really getting the idea of, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to walk with Jesus? What does it mean to be taught by him? What does it mean to be his disciple? I was a college student, and I remember a friend shared his story in front of, like, the group of students in the ministry that I was in, and he said, radical is a different word than two, he said, there's no such thing as a radical Christian. He said, you either follow Jesus or you don't. Because in that context, at that time, sometimes in college, the Christian, there's like the Christian kids who are radical and the Christian kids that are just kind of Christian. And he challenged that idea, and he said, you either follow Jesus or you don't. There's no such thing as a radical Christian. So will you follow him? And I think it's very true. We cannot try claim that we trust God the God who created the world by speaking, the one who became God incarnate and then died on the cross, 
was resurrected, the one who conquered death, we cannot say we have put our faith in him and then live as though nothing has happened or live like the rest of the world. But there's a weakness in this thinking too, and it's a temptation to use our deeds to prove our faith instead of it being the result of our faith. Remember, I will show you my faith with deeds. Faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete. This could seem abrupt, but to keep going, we're gonna look, we're going to look at a value in our community of zeal with contemplation. Do we have it? Zeal with contemplation. We will value, there's a lot of big words in here. I love, I do appreciate values and mission statements, but you have to know that there was a room of people that sat for hours um, talking through theological ideas and experiences and their heart for people and their heart for God, and they wrote down Bible verses and they told stories, and then after all of that, they wrote this down, and they're really hoping that we get it all. <laughs> uh, and so we will try our best, but there's a lot of words in there. So we'll read it so we can hear it and we're familiar with it, but then we're gonna focus on a little bit of it. It says, we will value the paradox of exuberance and zeal in worship, community life and evangelism, while at the same time wholeheartedly pursuing the rhythm and profound importance of silence and solitude for personal contemplation and rest. We affirm seasons of zeal and charismatic expression of the greatness and majesty of God along with seasons of silence and stillness before God. We value each and both together. We hope for a fusion of the two in a life of zeal, lived ablaze and unashamed for God. In contemplation, lived in deep awareness and quiet appreciation for God. Um, so I read that and had to look up some of the words because I, I think, we all do this, we think we know what something means, but let's look it up just to be sure we know what the dictionary says, and they did the same, because actually the phrases are in there. But zeal is great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an object. It is ablaze and unashamed. So I think what would be our cause or our object is to know Jesus and to make him known. To be a disciple that makes disciples to be someone who has put their faith in this claim that Jesus is the Christ, and then to tell others and proclaim that he is the Christ. In contemplation, the act of looking thoughtfully at something for a long time. Deep awareness and quiet appreciation. There was often in there silence and solitude mentioned. So when we think about zeal, we would probably think more of service labor, action. When we think of contemplation, we're gonna think likely of what I said, silence and solitude. And it can be a challenge to consider opposing ideas together and to think about how they work together or even exist together. I'm starting to think if it could even in part be because of the teachings we've experienced. We all have different church and spiritual backgrounds so I have to admit, and in some way I'm leaning on my own and what I've been walking through and thinking about, but perhaps you can um, relate to a few of them or imagine that you can relate to a few of them. 
um, we're going to look at a story in Luke 11. Because in this, um, whether we realize it or not, we have often been taught a comparison of contemplation and zeal, of contemplation and zeal, a comparison of these two from this story. So if you want to go to Luke 11, right? Did I have that right? Yep. No, it's Luke 10. Sorry. It's right up, but the 11's right there. (laughs) The very end, at the home of Martha and Mary. You've heard it. We've read this, I'm sure. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So, um, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen what is best. There can be a tendency to want to ask, are you a Mary or a Martha? Because on the surface it appears that Mary chose what was best, and she's better, and we need to not be Martha. I think, I think we've even been trained a little bit to hear Jesus saying it as like a rebuke or a chastisement as though he often chastised his disciples. I don't think he did. Um, I think it's just from our culture, we kind of picture him going, Martha, Martha, you're so distracted, and Mary's chosen what's best, as though he's like shaking his head at her. But I don't think that's the character of Christ. And it's because I think that there's a hitch in this whole thing. Um, not just to mention that this seems a little bit opposite of what James was saying, that faith would move us into action or that we would let our deeds show our faith. Martha's in action, and she's showing her, she has received Jesus into her home like Zacchaeus did that, and we don't have any mention of this. The tax collector did that. Peter welcomed Jesus into his mother's home, so we don't see anything like that in any of those. Like, people were honored and they were given honor for having invited Jesus and his disciples into his home. So that's two reasons why I think this doesn't quite pan out for me. And then I want to look at John 11. It's another story of Mary and Martha. Um, Where do I want to start with this? Well, basically, Mary and Martha, their um, brother Lazarus was sick, and Jesus is said to have loved Lazarus, but he doesn't come right away and ha- is telling his disciples that he's, he's dead, <laughs> he's sleeping, and they think he just means he's resting. So then Jesus says in verse 14, um, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him, thinking that they thought Jesus was going to be in trouble. So on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Um, now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So, in this story, I think it turns out very different for Martha and Mary. Martha's faith has led her to leave the house and go to Jesus. Her faith has prompted tangible, physical action. She goes to her teacher, and then she even makes a proclamation, a statement of faith. And in the midst of this, she communicates an emotional or steadfast state of faith in Jesus. And I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. When Mary sees Jesus, she's like, if my brother had been here, he wouldn't have died. <laughs> Martha had said that, but then her next statement was, but I know, and I know that you are the Son of God. Mary doesn't even go to Jesus until Martha returns, saying that Jesus is asking for her. So we can't even here, though, say that Mary had it, or Martha had it right, so now be more like Martha, and Mary was wrong. <laughs> or to do the inverse in the, in before. Because I think after reading these things, there's something else going on. So if we go back to Mary and Martha, Martha making preparations for Jesus, what he told her was this, Martha, Martha, you are upset and worried about many things. But only one thing is needed. Could it actually be something more about active trust, the state of her inner life, her anxiousness, her fear, her doubt? Could zeal with contemplation be about our inner lives, our hearts, souls, and minds being at ease and experiencing peace because of our faith, and then our faith being shown in deeds? This isn't contemplation versus zeal or faith versus deeds. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Old Testament thinkers, which I think it, if you think about this, the heart referred to their gut or to their emotions. 
even if you think of it, if something scares you or hits you deeply, like you kind of feel it in your gut or you can feel it in your chest, like you feel it. So heart, soul, mind, strength, I think a physical strength is not far off, is being worked out as we consider showing our faith by our deeds. It is in the present and very tangible if it is our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is zeal with contemplation. But I think there can be extremes to this. One extreme is activism. We become burdened, burned out, distraught. We start to lose hope because we're camped out in action, in service, in uh, labor. So the fear, unbelief, doubt start to build up, but we keep going, we keep working, we keep serving. We start to see people as a problem. Either they are a problem to fix or they are the reason things are not going as you planned. We do a lot of things for people, but these people seem to wonder if we even like them because our hearts are not at ease. If someone apparently has an anxious energy or they're nervous or frustrated in, in your presence, do you have a tendency to say, oh, he has zeal? He's like a lot of energy focused on one cause. Or more perhaps, what is wrong? Is everything okay? Let me get out of his way. Let me get out of her way. Because we're scared, and perhaps rightly so, that their anxiety will overflow in an outburst and it will be aimed at us. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's the extreme. But then on contemplation, I think we have a less of a tendency for this perhaps in our society, but it's still there. When we're here, we're reading a lot about what Jesus said, but we're not walking with the rabbi. Our feet are too clean. We need to get our feet dusty by following our teacher. We need to get into the battle and be bloodied. The Bible has become a textbook. It's no longer the living, breathing word. It no longer leads us to experience Jesus, to know the Father, to understand the Spirit's leading. We're not like Paul, compelled by our love to go to others, to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Instead, our inner lives are prone to be characterized by impatience with the people that like, don't get it. They don't get the apologetics, the deep apologetics that would change the world. They're, we're judgmental, we're arrogant. That's our inner life. So this is not about what's best, like we need to choose activism or contemplation. It's also not balance. I think balance is a myth. I think it's a rhythm, a back and forth. Hopefully not between extremes, but more of a gentle swing as we consider zeal and contemplation and action, silence, solitude, service, labor, like we're kind of going back and forth. Because as time is spent in active service, we then need silence and solitude. When Jesus had his disciples come back from their first missionary journey, he was taking them away from the crowds. I can't help but think it's because they were doing this. What just happened? What do I think about it? What do I feel about it? I think he was taking them away so they could experience solitude silence in communion with him so that they could sort it out. They could sort out their inner lives. Maybe they were worried about things, they were upset about things because of what they saw or what they heard or what their friend said to them. 
But I also think that after in time to sort things out, to be in silence, in peace, we have a renewed zeal and service. This guards us from serving out of anxiety. It settles our hearts to be certain about what we're doing and why we're doing it, which then releases, I think, even increased energy and zeal in service and spiritual leadership and activism. Because we hear things like this, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. Because Jesus, the shepherd, was speaking about what it means to have a good shepherd. And in Psalm 23, David, a shepherd, said, He makes me my Lord, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul. And Paul said, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That sounds like peace and ease, doesn't it? But, but what I am realizing, so perhaps I'm alone, is that I've never really been taught about silence and solitude. I think, thinking back, this is the extent Jesus prayed, like there's a passage in a gospel that says, Jesus left to pray. But Jesus prayed, he went alone to pray. If Jesus, the Son of God, felt he needed to get away to pray, then of course we need to pray. Jesus needed to do that, so how could we say we don't need to? But then, crickets. At least that's what I've heard no how-to or picture or guidance or anything, or even understand what this means. And you can't argue with that logic. Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray. Don't you think we need to pray? But I think I realized it also created feelings of shame or inadequacy, thinking, I need to pray, and I need to, I'm inadequate, and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So I, I began to read a book, um, I found it, accidentally found it in some ways, <laughs> by uh, McPherson called Keeping Silence. So I am now leaning on what I've been reading and learning from him. As I would read, I would think, what? No one told me this. No one shared this thought with me. Well, I never thought of this. I became aware again in a new way that we live in a loud, loud world. There is an abundance of audible noise, visible noise, emotional noise, mental noise that exists at a level that I think is completely unprecedented for any other time in human history. And we don't even take note of it because we're so used to it. McPherson, as he starts the book, said that he asked his congregation to keep silence for 10 minutes a day as a practice to keep during Advent, and then I think he asked them again during Lent. And this is what he said. I gotta find it. 
well, they were having a hard time. They were even like, can't do it, sorry. And so he was asking, he was trying to figure out, all right, and he started asking people. He said, what's so hard about keeping quiet? Some people told me that they were too busy to try 10 minutes of silence a day. But when we discussed things a little further, we discovered that that wasn't really the problem. Their schedules, somewhat to their surprise, included plenty of free time. Others tried the practice, but they were distracted by thoughts of urgent things they should be doing. Some said it felt empty, like a dead and futile silence. Others admitted that silence frightened them, or that it hurt them to keep silence. It hurt some people physically. They itched, they ached. Some, it hurt psychologically. One person told me it just reminded her of everything that's wrong. They found, in short, that when exterior noise was removed or diminished, interior noise took over, which was uncomfortable. An exercise intended to be meditative was for many stressful indeed, and so they gave up. My suggestion to keep silence as a way to simplify life, to find calm and to get relief from the stresses of a busy world only augmented their stresses. Replacing external noise with inner noise was a poor bargain, for the inner chaos was worse than external agitation. He said a lot of people told him, it sounded like a good idea, but then I tried it. I think also in the midst of this, as I was thinking about this and more things he was saying, is we've also just lost our ability to focus on things for long. So 10 minutes of silence felt like long and agonizing. <laughs> because ironically, we have these two new tendencies in how we entertain ourselves with screens. We have hashtag shorts, or what was once vines. We want fast, quick videos. I mean, they need to be less than two minutes, preferably less than 30 seconds. We just want to, come on, like quick, get to the next one. We also have Netflix binges. The entire season of our favorite shows are released in one day, and then we watch them in less than a week, or perhaps just in two days. We just watch them all in two days. We want to take things in very quickly, but also for a long, very long time. And then if you throw in their iPhone notifications going off all day or raising young kids who have like constant physical and emotional needs, we are, we are surrounded by noise and we are surrounding ourselves by noise. And here's an example from my life. This is, I guess, me sharing reflection of this for me too. As I do not expect him to respond but I do feel very free to send my husband photos and texts about my day with the kids while he is at work. Pictures of what they're doing, hopefully not as often, but sometimes like, oh my goodness, they're all yelling at me. I don't know if I can do this. Um, but this is a really new thing. Like spouses went to work, they worked, maybe they got a phone call at work because there was an emergency, and then they went home and they were with their families. But now, pictures of kids at the park send notifications to the parent at work. Work colleagues sends messages to families when they're at home. Like, seriously, <laughs> we are doing both in both ways. In fact, Eric has two phones. The kids call his work phone his potato phone because he works with potato growers. And I look at him holding two phones sometimes and I think, that's crazy. That is wild. I don't know how you do that. And he said, 
that it actually gives him a barrier. It actually gives him a boundary because he can leave the potato phone in the office and not check it until he needs to. And I really try, I think sometimes I mess up, but I really try to send like the park pics, picture of Mila in the morning or something like that to his personal phone. So if he's chosen to leave it in the truck, I'm not interrupting him when he's talking to a colleague or he's in a meeting. But this is, this is where we're at, that two phones <laughs> is actually in this backwards way like helpful <laughs> because it's helping us silence a little bit of a noise. But this is all to prove that like silence feels very unnatural and very abnormal to us and it can make us really uncomfortable. So maybe at the depth of this we just don't like silence. We don't trust it. I have to lean on McPherson a little bit more. Oh, no, I don't want a new highlight. <laughs> um, he, he's talking about how in a, in a huge crowd, you can kind of like drown out the sound of a crowd or of children, but you can still attend to like the one voice of a child. So he says, but we hear noise, even if we do not notice it. We get used to it by becoming somewhat oblivious to its presence. As a result, silence now becomes abnormal. Remove the envelope of noise and we become anxious and nervous. Just as a long-term prisoner released from jail finds freedom, confining, and longs for the regularity and predictability of life on the cell block. We long for what we know, noise. Our noisy world acts as a kind of insulation, a distraction from the serious concerns that silence often invites. Silence reminds us of ultimate questions of life and death, of meaning, of finitude. Many of these are issues that people prefer consciously or unconsciously to avoid, perhaps in part because it prompts us to face uncomfortable truths. Silence has certain negative connotations. Silence is a natural symbol for death itself, as in the phrase, silence in the tomb. Psalm 31 curses the wicked with silence. Let them be silent in the grave. Silence equals death at some level, so we are afraid of silence as we are of death. Silence is also associated with punishment. One of the worst forms of correction a prisoner can suffer is sol solitary confinement. Silence is also used to punish children if they misbehave, they are forced to be silent, forbidden to talk or make noise, like the condemned person in the Book of Lamentations who is to put his mouth to the dust and to sit alone in silence. They experience silence as a punitive tool and resent it. Being forced into silence, having it imposed in a frightening or painful way, causes people to dislike it and to associate noise with freedom and pleasure. That feels very, like, I think that was the biggest part of, like, no one's ever said this. I've never thought about this. What? This is, like, totally new idea to me, anyway. Or completely profound realization in that way that it's, like, shocking and a little scary at the same time. Because you're just realizing the, the harshness of it and the truth of it.
But he goes on to say, I won't read this, it'll slow me down too much, I think. I wanted to. So he said, so why choose silence? And some of the reasons he said is that almost is that it always calms your heart and, re and reduces, like, the, to try to keep silence, to learn how to observe silence, your heart rate will slow, your blood pressure goes down. People will, accustomed to silence, say they um, work better, they're more focused at work. Work then even becomes a joy pleasure, they're able to enjoy their day more, like pleasurable things like time with friends or your family is more pleasurable because of your time in silence. I think the biggest one is that um, prayer, I, I'm almost convinced now the beginning of prayer is even listening to God, and you cannot listen to God if you're not first silent. So are we even, at times, are we even praying? That spiritually, silence is necessary to hear God. Silence is necessary to then be able to communicate with God. But one, there's also, I want to make one comment about silence and solitude, because solitude has come up too. In some ways, this is much more individual than we want it to be. It is a personal battle for silence and solitude. But then we come together having been with God. It's not like this Lone Ranger thing, like, I'm going to do this on my own. But it is a deeply personal thing that you do in solitude so that we can come back together having experienced God. We cannot lean on the zeal, experience, excitement, and direction of others. This is our own battle. At times, yes, you see a spiritual leader say, this is what we're going to do, and I'm really excited about it. And you could say, I'm not sure if I'm there completely, but I will go with my community, and I will, and I will serve. That's not what I'm talking about. It's like the constant leaning on the excitement and the zeal and the hope of others to be your zeal and your hope and your resilience. I think when Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, I do not think he meant mimic my actions and my deeds. I think he said, watch me follow Jesus, watch me listen to his voice, and then follow Jesus and listen to his voice. But it takes work to remove everything else and be with God. So we're going to end really by talking more about needing to have zeal in contemplation. That great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an object must be focused on deep awareness and quiet appreciation. It is work. It's work to simplify my home and my schedule so I can create margin. I just I can't raise my hand to volunteer for everything just because I was asked. Can, I, I cannot sign my kids up for every camp and lesson and experience that I hear of. I have to not overplan. For me, personally, anyway, I have to let go of possessions and material things that aren't serving a purpose in my home. I have to let go of it. I have to get it out. Um, I have to keep my house tidy during the day so that I can go to bed early. I do not always do this well, but I know that I need to. I need to get up early so that I can keep silence. 
when I'm rested, when the house is quiet, when the neighborhood is quieter, when phones are less likely to go off, when the air is cooler, this takes work. But zeal and contemplation will lead to zeal and action in the appropriate time. With a settled inner life that is marked by love, joy, peace, we can go into the world and we can show our faith by our deeds. We will have been with the Father. We will have seen Jesus. We will have heard the Spirit. We will have worked out our inner life, things that were causing anxiety or anger or impatience or judgment. We can say, search my heart, O God, and know, and know me. Show me any anxious ways within me. Show me any unpleasing things within me. We can do that. We will serve and will lead with a calm, steadfast resolve. We will be the people of peace that God is searching the earth to find. But it takes work and it takes zeal. So uh, we're going to try to keep silence for a bit. So the band can come up if they want. Or please, can the band come up? <laughs> I'm going to give very little instruction, but then a lot of time. So um, sit up straight, but not rigid. You can be comfortable. Read this piece of Psalm 1 a few times. Then breathe slow, breathe slow and relax your body. Continue to repeat the words or even a phrase from these words if there's two or three. You'll become very aware of your body. Like if you're itchy or warm or something's uncomfortable. Maintain stillness, but you can move. Return to the words. Repeat them again and again. You might be uncomfortable mentally or emotionally, so just say it to yourself. Like, I feel really anxious about this. Feel really confused about this, but then just go back to the psalm. Experience the silence and the words. If you hear God speaking, listen. When the band starts to play, that's when we've kept silence. But you can still sit if you want and keep keep going, or you can then stand and join them if you want. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.